Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Facing Evil. I'm Rasha Pecorero. And I'm Yvette Gentile, and today we're really diving into a landmark murder case that surprisingly few people have heard about. It's the case of Vincent Chin. Yeah, that's right, Yvette. Just a couple of years ago, you may recall that there was a surge of anti-Asian violence, including the murder of multiple people at three different Atlanta, Georgia spas that sparked outrage, of course, and a revival of an Asian civil rights movement. But the roots of that movement were laid with this very case, the case of Vincent Chin, all the way back in 1982. And on today's show, we'll have a guest who will talk with us about what made this case so groundbreaking. But first, our producer Trevor is going to take us through today's case. The 27-year-old was beaten to death with a baseball bat by two men who were fined $3,000 and received no jail time. These two killers had received probation for killing a Chinese man. I just couldn't believe that this had happened. After his terribly tragic murder, what ended up happening was people felt like we need to become more politically important and powerful, and that has occurred, and I think that that's a beautiful legacy of a very tragic event. Vincent Chin was a 27-year-old Chinese-American man who was killed in a racially motivated attack in 1982. In June of that year, Vincent was planning to get married. On the night of June 19th, Vincent Chin and his friends were out celebrating for Vincent's bachelor party in Detroit, Michigan. While at a local strip club, they had an altercation with a man named Ronald Evans. Evans was a 42-year-old white man who had worked at Chrysler Automotive for years. At the time, Ford, GM, and Chrysler all had headquarters in Detroit and were in rapid decline. This was due to competition from car makers in Japan, Korea, and Germany. And during this time, scores of Detroit auto workers were being laid off, including Evans' nephew, Michael Nitz. And like many, 
they blamed their layoffs on competition from Asian countries. Ebbins and Nitz happened to be at the same nightclub as Vincent Chin that night, and they reportedly shouted expletives at him and persistently insulted him on the basis of his heritage. The argument escalated, and Vincent and his friends eventually left the club, but Ebbins followed him to a McDonald's, where he and Nitz attacked and beat him to death. Ronald Ebbins and Michael Nitz were charged with second-degree murder, and Ebbins was fired the following year. And then, in a devastating blow to the Asian American community, the Detroit ACLU and National Lawyers Guild came out saying that the killing of Vincent Chin did not violate his civil rights. And disappointingly, government officials and politicians agreed. And in March of the next year, Nitz and Evans successfully entered a plea bargain that brought charges against them down to manslaughter. They received no jail time and only three years probation, a $3,000 fine, and $780 in court fees. This event sparked the formation of a new civil rights group. They were called American Citizens for Justice, or ACJ, and they held a protest in May of that year, claiming that Judge Charles Kaufman's decision was tantamount to giving out, quote, a license to kill for $3,000, provided you have a steady job or are a student and the victim is Chinese, end quote. Michael Nitz was acquitted on both charges, but Ronald Evans was found guilty of one count and sentenced to 25 years in prison. But Evans' conviction was overturned. Instead, Ronald Evans was ordered to pay Chin's family $1.5 million at a rate of $200 a month for two years. But he never did, and the family of Vincent Chin has to this day never seen a dime. And so, who was Vincent Chin? And how does this story reflect the ever-present issue of anti-Asian racism and violence in America? Welcome back. Vincent Chin is just one example of the many Asian Americans who have faced racism and violence in this country. The issue of anti-Asian hate is one that goes back hundreds of years and sadly still persists today. Our guest today is one of the leading scholars and voices speaking out against anti-Asian hate and bias. Dr. Lok Siu joins us. She is a cultural anthropologist and professor of ethnic studies at UC Berkeley. Dr. Siu, welcome to Facing Evil. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here and talk a little bit more about uh, the issues of anti-Asian hate and violence. Yes, thank you. We're so happy you're here because it's an, a very, very important topic and we want to get right into it. So Dr. Sue, can you tell us about the history of this issue? When and how did anti-Asian hate first start to rear its head in America? And how severe has it been historically? Well, I, th you know, in the history of Asian Americans in the U.S., anti-Asian hate has been such a persistent aspect of life. And I think, you know, you see these episodes emerging as early as um, the 1870s, as soon as the first Chinese immigrants arrived to the United States. There were mass riots, over 150 of them across the country. And you're talking about, you know, communities 
whose homes were burnt down, who were forced to leave their sites. And some have to go underground and created these underground um, tunnels where they couldn't walk outside in the streets, but actually had to, you know, go underground quite literally Mm -hmm. to move from place to place. And so, you know, even at that moment in the 1870s, you see this extreme sort of violence against the Chinese workers. That was also followed, you know, by other attacks against South Asian American immigrants. There were, you know, Filipino workers that were being attacked, you know, in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, you have the moment of the 1940s with the massive incarceration of Japanese Americans. That didn't end, you know, mid-century, but we saw spikes, you know, with the Vincent Chin incident in the 1980s. And of course, again, he is um, one of the the many Asian Americans that were attacked and violently attacked. In his case, you know, it was such a egregious situation that the community really mobilized against it. But we see this emerging again, you know, with anti-Muslim, anti-Arab American um, profiling, you know, during Mm 9-11 and the attacks against, you know, women uh, wearing hijabs because of their culturally signifier, you know, that they bear. And, you know, again, this is this is just ongoing, even to um, at present, you have the uptick, you know, of anti-Asian violence because of the COVID event and the sparking of anti-Asian racism, you know, during this moment, you know, by many members in our society. And so you see over 10,000 attacks have been recorded. And this is an underestimate, in fact, mm-hmm. you know, that these are self-reporting documentation of people's experiences alongside the racial profiling of Chinese American, Asian American scientists, you know, who are targeted by the FBI and in whose lives are turned upside down with false accusations. So these are the the many different events across time and the, the various sorts of activities um, that have been targeting Asian Americans, you know, really kind of arising from the anti-Asian hate and anti-Asian racism that is in our country. Dr. Sue, can you tell us what brought you to the topic of anti-Asian hate? I think most recently, just seeing on media and hearing all the stories of the attacks, especially against the elderly in our population, Mm. um, the women of our population. I myself have a mother who is 82 years old, and I fear for her life. She lives in San Francisco, and, and San Francisco and Oakland are two, and New York are three cities that have um, the highest rates of attacks. And I have two children of my own. I have sisters and I am scared, you know, of their safety, for their safety. And, you know, they're walking around trying to go get groceries, right? Taking the bus. That's a real concern. And those, I think those particular stories that I hear on the news really struck home and really made me think about my own family, myself, and, you know, the kinds of dangers that they experience on an everyday basis, walking around, minding their own business, doing their own things. And that is what was most heartbreaking for me. And it made me think about the state of our country 
you know, certain people are not able to walk around feeling a basic sense of safety, Hmm. that they're always looking over their shoulders and, you know, thinking about, am I next? You know, is there someone behind me? And that's frightening. Um, And I think that has caused tremendous anxiety, you know, within our community and tremendous stress. Mental health issues are emerging. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can you tell us how capitalism and different types of economic factors lend themselves to racism and violence? I mean, it really feels like in many ways, Vincent's case is wrapped up in the failings of capitalism. I think it's absolutely connected. We see many of these spikes in violence created by assumptions of jobs taking away from people, economies are down usually, and where there is a lot of antagonism between countries and nations. You know, in the case of Vincent Chen, he is Chinese American, but in the period of the 1980s, it was really around um, the car industry, particularly of Japan's Mm -hmm. rise in the car manufacturing industry that in many ways created a situation where 
there were such strong t- sentiments around faulting the Japanese as being the culprit of taking away jobs from Americans. And actually, you know, he is an American citizen, you know, Chinese, he is Chinese American and is a citizen of the United States. And this is where I think the racial component really plays a role here that, you know, just because he is Chinese or Asian appearing, presenting, he is assumed to be a foreigner. And I think that there is this idea of Asian Americans as um, foreigners that are so steeped in our society that we don't consider them as full citizens, as first class citizens in the United States, but we immediately associate them with a foreign country. And therefore, whenever there are geopolitical conflict or tensions going on, that um, Asians are immediately associated with those countries, even though they are often American-born, American citizens, et cetera. And that, that is really what we see happening here, that the economy has a tremendous effect. And because of the racialization of Chinese and Asian Americans as foreigners, that it, it becomes a real issue. I think it's important to note that our immigration policies have always been set up to encourage a certain kind of migration from certain places for certain Mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. And this is absolutely true for Asian Americans. And this is where the racial capitalism comes in. When you think of immigration expanding in order to increase a certain kind of workforce. And so if you track this over time, you see this happening, you know, with the railroad workers that came to work, you know, as labor and then you have, um, you know, even today you have the HB1 visas. Hmm. And, you know, the, the critical point was in 1965 when they stopped the quota system and really changed the immigration criteria that attracted people with um, education and skilled labor. So you had this opening where then a, a group of immigrants coming from everywhere, but especially Asia, who are highly educated and who have skills to offer to the U.S. And so, you know, these are the ways in which the the immigration policies really kind of help to funnel certain kinds of workers into the United States. And it's it's very clear that um, at certain moments, you know, why Asian immigrants were recruited, you know, were allowed in through immigration, such as the farm workers, you know, of the past, Mm -hmm. the railroad workers, the farm workers of the past, and then now the tech workers, you know, of the present. And this is how you see the convergence, you know, of the economic imperatives of the country really kind of moving forward with the support of immigration. And that's how you structure sort of the racial capitalism actually is constructed in the U.S. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. that's how it's still unfolding. I want to jump forward a little bit, Dr. Sue. So in the 21st century, like, you know, many Americans today maybe think that, you know, anti-Asian hate or racism against Asian Americans is a thing of the past. But as we all know, you know, it's reared its ugly head lately and and especially in the last few years when we saw the horrific spa shootings that happened in Atlanta, Georgia. Do you think that was a wake up call for our country to start recognizing that racism is alive for anti-Asian Americans? Like, it's so heartbreaking. Absolutely. I think for a while, and I think it's still persistent today in American minds, American psyches, that the notion of Asian Americans as having achieved 
you know, success. Um, at the model minority stereotype is really at the forefront. It's reinforced, you know, in popular media, in news articles, and etc. But I think that that perception, it's it really is a very strong stereotype, yeah. um, and it doesn't represent the realities of the diverse population of Asian Americans. You're talking about 23 million Asian Americans. And as a group, they are the group with the widest income disparity of any racial group in the United States, oh, wow. which means that, yes, there are people doing really well economically among this group, but there are people who are doing incredibly poorly, you know, and you see this in um, education achievements, believe it or not, mm-hmm. but income levels, health equity. So this is where I think the stereotype hides you know, this large spectrum and these realities, you know, of people living sometimes, you know, barely above means, you know, on welfare in housing projects. And we don't see that. And once we get that in our head, we we seem to project it, you know, onto all Asian Americans. And that is just not true. And I think that with that, you know, being at the forefront of people's minds, they don't think of Asian Americans as experiencing any kind of structural racism, you know, mm-hmm. or cultural racism. And, you know, there's so many studies out there that show that Asian Americans hit a glass ceiling or a bamboo ceiling, even in the professional life, hmm. that in fact, you know, there are many people who are stuck, you know, in lower management that are not able to rise on top. So across the whole spectrum, you know, of the poor and even of the professional class, there's a lot of discrimination that needs to be addressed. It hasn't been because we haven't had that conversation. We haven't had the opportunity to really check in and say, you know, these things are really happening. Here are the information, the data that we've collected, and here are the experiences. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Sue, do you you believe that, you know, anti-Asian hate can be dissolved in America? I mean, you just spoke on capitalism and how it's dominating the core structure, you know, of of this country. But I guess what I want to say is, is there any way that, you know, we can break this toxic cycle? What can we do? What can we all do as a society? I certainly hope so. You know, I see a lot of issues that we need to address in the country on the education level. Our students are not taught this mm-hmm. history, mm-hmm. along with many other groups' histories, indigenous peoples, African-Americans, Latinx populations. That's a key beginning in terms of transforming that knowledge base of who belongs in the United States, who are Americans, you know, broadly speaking, mm-hmm. and, you know, what have they contributed, you know, to our country to make it the you know better and much more uh, livable and, and and in fact much more just because of their being here? Hmm. There is on the level of cultural representations, you know, how we are represented, whether we are represented, you know, mm-hmm. in media, the kinds of skewed images. Um, that we might have of certain populations that produce and continue and sustain the uh, discrimination against them, the racism against them. Um, those are the things that we can correct, you know, and, and representation in the workspace. You know, I think that that's a key area where we do need leadership 
um, to represent the people of this country, the leadership to represent, you know, who we are as a group, um, as a country. You know, I think that's, that's critical to be in the boardroom to make decisions that matter to our communities. Yes. Those aspects are really, really critical to achieving a, a more um, equitable, socially just society and representative, you know, of who we are as a society. There are so many, so many arenas, you know, I think we need to make sure that the laws align with our goals and ideals. And I think sort of we're chipping away slowly. You know, I think that we need to just work at, at small fronts, you know, in our daily lives, as, as well as these larger societal changes. And only through that can we hope for true transformation in our country. That's absolutely beautiful, Dr. Sue. Like you're speaking to our hearts right now (laughs) because representation truly matters. And just like you have said, like small ways and big Mm -hmm. ways, right? Um, Thank you for that. I think we all can help to break that cycle. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I would like to to ask as well, you know, kind of piggybacking on Yvette's last question, everything you so eloquently answered. 
So I know you've told us the small ways of how to break the toxic cycle, but in reference to Vincent Chin, right, his killers sadly never saw any jail time. There was no justice for Vincent's family. I mean, they were supposed to, the killers were supposed to pay a substantial amount of money to Vincent's family and no one was held accountable. They didn't pay them a dime. How do we change that? How do we make people more accountable, especially in a a case like that? I think that particular case involves us to rethink the uh, justice system. I think the the law on anti-hate laws are really critical, but I think that's a starting point. We need to enforce it. We need to recognize it. I think that is the second point that we need to absolutely work on as a social justice system that requires a certain knowledge around anti-racism and around how it is actually practiced, you know, how it is actually displayed and to have stricter laws around that and have a social system that recognize that this is an anti-hate crime and be able to enforce it. It was murder. Yes, absolutely. I think that there is no way around it. Um, There's so many cases, you know, that is clear cut, and yet we're not able to find justice, you know, in those occasions. Mm -hmm. Vincent Chin, I mean, it was was so clear that it was racially motivated, that it was a violent, unjustified attack that put him in a coma and and then killed him four days later. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with two people, one holding him down and the other beating him with a baseball bat to a point where he can never wake up. That is a serious, serious crime and a racially motivated crime. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it accompanied racial slurs. It accompanied with comments around him being Japanese, right? Yeah, right. Again, um, a misrecognition. And, and even that, you know, I think that there's so much going on there. Our system failed us. 100%. And we need to make sure that that does not happen again for Asian Americans, for anyone in this country, you know, for all populations. And that is a crucial point that we need to get across as a society. For our listeners, you know, we know that there are small ways to improve the issue, you know, of Asian hate. There are maybe changes that we can unintentionally perpetuate Asian stereotypes, right, that need to be eliminated. What can we do, in your opinion, in big and small ways to change this? Um, I think that's a great question. For your listeners, I think as individuals, we can do a lot in terms of our own self education. There are so many books out there that we can pick up. And it is absolutely true. We don't have enough dialogue um, with one another. We don't have enough understanding of our histories, of our current experiences. And we can do that beginning with conversations, reaching out, Mm -hmm. you know, to others if you see someone, you know, go ahead and, and, and have a conversation, break the ice. And from there, you build on smaller to larger conversations to bigger item questions. But also, you know, take time to learn on our own, right, about our different histories. 
because that is crucial. You know, I think to build empathy, as you mentioned, we need to understand how we come together, you know, as a fabric of uh, woven together in this society as a mosaic, you know, mm. and we are, you know, we are a mosaic, um, you know, with many different strands of history coming into this country. And uh, we need to understand how we have been in some ways not speaking to each other, not learning this, acknowledging that is the first step, and then beginning the process, you know, of re-education and reaching out, you know, across to one another to make those human connections. And I think you'd be surprised at making those human connections, whether it is, you know, at the school, you know, when you pick up your children or at the workplace, or when you interact with someone at a restaurant or a cafe, you will be amazed at the kinds of, you know, response and rapport. And, and it's through those small, intimate moments that grow into bigger social relations, you know, with one another. And I think that is, yeah. it's, that is itself really crucial. If people don't feel like they have time to, you know, that's all right. There are lots of also websites that are available to look up, you know, little pithy historical narratives. And, you know, everyone learns incrementally. It's not like we can sit down and like absorb mm. every, all histories of the world, you know, and through one book, that's not possible. Yeah. We wish. <laughs> but I think we do these small acts and the small acts build up and that's crucial. I love that. I mean, so beautifully said. Your words are just so powerful and we are so grateful to have you on the show, um, to have your insight, to have your expertise, to have your warmth and your kindness, which radiates through the screen here. So we have to do everything in our power to speak out, share our voices, share our stories. Amplify Asian voices and all marginalized people's yes. voices. Yeah, thank you. And, and, you know, I think there are opportunities for people to engage, you know, on there's a there's a great um, organization that started um, chaperoning elders, you know, in Chinatown. So they that. would walk them to their doctor's appointments, walk them to the groceries, uh, the grocery markets, you know, and really kind of make sure that they're not alone. Um, right. And the simple act, you know, of just walking someone is has an amazing, amazing effect. And, you know, those are the, again, the small acts that people can take up, mm -hmm. you know, to support Asian American community during this moment. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much. You know, Dr. Laksu, you are just a gem, a gem, and we appreciate you. We are going to say mahalo nui loa from the bottom of our heart for having this incredible conversation that all of our listeners need to listen to. So again, we thank you. Thank you both so much. This is such an important topic and I so appreciate your commitment and dedication to these issues. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Sue. The modern movement for Asian American civil rights began with very little support. That was during a time when anti-Asian American sentiment was particularly harsh and legal experts weren't confident that civil rights law could apply to a case involving the beating death of an Asian American. But two people did speak up and their names were Helen Zia and Liza Chan. 
Zia was a writer and activist who helped to form American Citizens for Justice. And Chan was the lawyer who took on the criminal case pro bono, getting evidence and testimonies. When these women started, there was no national civil rights group or even a movement for Asian Americans. Not only did their work advance the fight for justice for Vincent Chin, it laid the groundwork for a larger movement that continues to grow today. That's right, and they started with nothing and ended up with a movement that has touched millions. And now we would like to take a moment to honor work like this that sheds light in an incredibly dark time when things seem impossible and goes on to make a meaningful difference. Onward and upward, Imua. Imua. Well, that's our show for today. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there's a case you'd like us to cover. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. And one small request, if you haven't already, please find us on iTunes and give us a good rating and review if you like what we do. Your support is always cherished. Until next time. Aloha. Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producer Tracy Kaplan. Our researcher is Carolyn Talmadge. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.